seriously popular. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Need new glasses or want a fresh new style? Warby Parker has you covered. Glasses start at just 95 bucks, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Every frame's designed in-house, with a huge selection of styles for every face shape. And with Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs to try at home for free. Shipping is free both ways, too. Go to warbyparker.com covered to try five pairs of frames at home for free. Warbyparker.com covered. Hello, I'm Natasha Livingston, Royal Correspondent for The Mail on Sunday. Welcome to The Crown, Fact or Fiction. This is the podcast where we put royal experts on the sofa, turn on The Crown and tell you if what you're seeing is how things really happened. I'm joined on this and every episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction by Robert Hardman, royal biographer and male columnist. Hello, Natasha. It's good to be back on the sofa again. We've been waiting now a few days for the sort of second instalment, if you like, of The Crown. There has been a brief hiatus in the series, and it's good to be back. Yeah, so for series six, the producers decided to separate it into part one and part two, with the first four episodes focusing on the death of Diana. But now, as we understand it, Robert, part two is going to move forward and look to the future. Yes, of all the series of The Crown, we're obviously on the sixth one. This is the first time it's, it's sort of been broken up in this way. And I think we will see a change of tone, a change of tempo. And the first episode is titled Will's Mania, which you have a personal connection to, Robert. <laughs> yeah, it was, when I saw it, I thought that rings a bell. And I, I did go back through the database. And as far as I can see, the first journalist to use the phrase, coin the phrase perhaps, Will's Mania, I'm afraid was yours truly back in March 1998, for reasons that I think will become clear <laughs> if this uh, episode, episode five of series six, if it follows a course, I think it's going to follow. So um, shall we take a look? Let's get started. You sure you're ready for this? I spoke to your housemaster yesterday and suggested you might attend as a day pupil for a little while. I just want things to get back to normal as quickly as possible. How did it go? It was all a little uncomfortable, if I'm honest, as if he's cross with me in some way. There are two deliveries. This one's from the school. More than 600 boys felt moved to offer their condolences. This one contains letters from all around the world, mostly, I think, from young ladies. Dear William, I can only imagine what you must be going through. 
Please rest assured, all of us in B Block have your back. Dear William, I lost my mom last year to cancer. You are not alone. Well, we've had a very uh, lengthy opening sequence before we get to the credits. Packing in a lot. It starts with William at what appears to be Highgrove, very much lost in his own thoughts, very sullen, as one would expect. This is in the immediate aftermath of the death of Diana. And his father is taking him back to Eton. And you see Charles in a slightly kind of clunky, middle-aged dad way, trying to get down with the youth and sticking Radio 1 on in the car and trying to encourage his son to share his breakfast of muesli. William says virtually nothing and then gets back to Eton. You feel that's where he wants to be. Yeah, Charles says in this scene that recovering from this grief is going to take time, but all William seems to want to do is get back to his friends, move on. And he appears to be welcomed back at Eton with letters of condolences from 600 boys. I did actually find that a royal expert said that this happened. Were you aware of that? Yeah, I don't know the specific number, but certainly Eton did throw a protective cocoon around him. It had done already, actually, before Diana's death. But I think they found... And Harry would do later when he went there that the school was a great sanctuary. It did sort of embrace him. It didn't make it a huge fuss. Everyone was very conscious of what they'd been through. We've just seen the first appearance there as well of William's housemaster, Dr. Andrew Gailey, who was indeed his housemaster, called Andrew Gailey, who's a very respected and much-loved housemaster who then went on to become, I think, vice provost of the school. And he did play a key part, I think, in just making school life as bearable as possible in this aftermath. So far, the characterization seems fairly true to form. And also, we saw there as Prince Charles drops off William straight on the phone as Princess Anne saying, how did it go? And as ever offering some wise and fairly frank words of advice. So, yes, this episode is now set up to see what is clearly going to be, how does William cope with what's coming next? The school has received a request for your attendance at an official event. I insisted you be given the right to refuse. No, it's fine. I'll do it. Right. Shall we? There's a couple of names and faces that you need to pretend to remember when they come over to you. Jean, Grand Duke of Luxembourg, late 70s, white star. Albert II, Like the arrival of some pop star. Now I tell you, you would not want to listen to that scene with a hangover. The shrieks of the Wilsmania fans are really quite deafening. I don't know what you thought of it. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously playing up this sudden switch from being a child to uh, a heartthrob. Yeah. Um, that's what we're seeing here. So we've seen William sort of adjusting to life back at Eton. Then he gets a call up from his housemaster saying, um, look, actually, the family want you to take part in this golden wedding anniversary celebration for the Queen. <sighs> you know, I, I know I'm always sort of having a, a mild whinge about the crown um, going off message. But I mean, you know, that was a very, very central moment for the Queen. This whole series is really, the whole crown is about the life of Elizabeth II. This was a key moment in her life. It's always sort of brushed aside because it's all a sort of psychodrama involving William. But, you know, there he is meeting up with the family for this golden wedding celebration. And I was suddenly thinking, who on earth is that chap he's talking to? And it turns out it's Prince Harry. Prince Harry, since the last episode, has, I mean, in, in real terms, in real life, it's, it's about, what is it, two months later, he's about... 
10 years older. What's going on here, Natasha? Yeah, it's quite interesting because the scene we watch is they kind of do this photo shoot and then Prince Harry is quite sort of cheeky chappy, provides Prince William a cup of tea, except he's actually filled it with champagne, which, you know, is naughty for a teenager, but Harry was meant to be 13 at this age, so that really is quite naughty for a 13-year-old sort of drinking in the middle of the day. But he's completely changed from the, the, yeah. the person in the last episode. So Flynn Edwards, who is the young actor that played Harry in part one, is 14 years old, whereas Luther Ford, who is playing Harry now, is 23. So that is quite a significant... That's quite a leap in two yeah. months. Yes. So, so presumably in later episodes, as the time period moves forward, this will make more sense. It's a bit of a leap of the imagination. But we do know that there was a golden wedding service at Westminster Abbey. I remember covering it. And then the royal family actually sort of split because Charles and the boys did indeed go to Greenwich, as we see in the episode, to host a lunch for the foreign royal family. But the Queen and Prince Philip went for an incredibly important lunch in Whitehall at the banqueting house with Tony Blair, organised, as it were, on behalf of the nation. And it included a very, very important speech by the Queen and also by Blair. That seems to be lost in all this. I mean, all right, you know, they've decided clearly this episode, as the title, Will's Mania, Suggest. Not Queen Mania. It's not Queen Mania, it's Will's Mania. But I, I was slightly surprised to see the Queen and Prince Philip pop up there at Greenwich because they weren't at Greenwich. They were having their big lunch in Whitehall with the people. But, you know, there we are. It's once again crown, fact or fiction, better both. Uh, one thing that I was quite surprised by that was apparently true is the articles covering the arrival at the Royal Naval College in Greenwich. Is they, the articles really did describe it as Prince William getting a pop star reception from screaming schoolgirls. And I mean, I don't know why I was so surprised by this, but it really seeing that kind of level of excitement and we'll see it later in the recreation of the scenes in Canada but I mean at the time was this a surprise? It was a sort of a new phenomenon because as I say up until this point William and Harry were seen as sort of as children basically and then I think because the whole world had seen that extraordinary show of frankly bravery the two of them walking behind their mother's coffin that has struck a real chord among people and I think from that moment on people felt about them in a different way certainly for teenage girls the same age as William. This was a sort of era of sort of Leo DiCaprio becoming a sort of the big star and, and suddenly DiCaprio had a rival. Here he is. <laughs> One thing that's quite interesting is he really is shown here, William, to be very uncomfortable with the attention and some of the articles do mention this but they also quote him kind of lapping up the attention even though he is blushing and in the pictures from the time we see that Prince William when he arrived at the uh, Royal Naval College has got a bunch of flowers in his hand and he, as the mirror described at the time, apparently sauntered over to collect these flowers from a 14-year-old girl who was kind of showering him with praises. So maybe he wasn't quite so uncomfortable with the attention? Uh, I think he was just trying to be polite, like anybody, particularly if you've been trained to be royal. You know you've got to be kind and polite and nice to people who've taken the trouble to come out and see you. So I just think he's sort of going through the motions. But I think I'm sure we'll see it later in this episode. You know, this is a time of his life when he really did get very uncomfortable in the presence of the cameras, much more so, funnily enough, than Harry, who in later life, it would be the other way around. But let's move on, because I think it's not going to be an easy ride. I'd like both of you to join me in a visit to Canada over Easter. The idea is to combine a few official engagements with a four-day skiing holiday in Whistler. Just the three of us. I had plans. 
see friends. It'd be good for us as a family. It was agony. At least you made the effort. Yes, and he pushed it all back in my face. So we're back at Eton there. It's pouring with rain. Charles pays Prince William a visit, who says he is fine repeatedly, but in that tone, which is clear that he's obviously not fine. He is very grumpy, and probably more so in that classic teenage way, because he is meant to be 15 years old here. But obviously, on top of that, there is, you know, the grieving that he's experiencing. But I think it's a very relatable conversation there, that dynamic between a dad who's really trying, you know, and the teenager that is just having absolutely none of it. I think you really feel for Charles there. Yeah, I mean, that is an authentic teenage conversation, virtually monosyllabic, over-smiley parent trying to coax some sort of upbeat remark out of someone who's clearly down in the dumps. I mean, I, I still feel uncomfortable about this. You know, Prince William is with us. He's part of us. He's part of our sort of national life, and no one has a clue what his relations with his father were at this time. I just think that if he ever gets around to watching us, and I suspect he won't, I think he'd feel that, you know, that was just taking rather the too many liberties a little earlier in the programme. Suddenly we're dragging the housemaster's wife and her illness into the story. I mean, the, the Crown does have this sort of casual way of trampling all over people's real thoughts in a way that they have the faintest idea what really happened. But, you know, that's been the story of this series. One other interesting thing we're starting to see here as well, I think, is the way that characterization of Camilla Parker Bowles in the aftermath of Diana's death, very solid, sensible, practical. I did like that line, actually, where uh, the Prince of Wales is sort of sympathising for what she's been through, and she just goes, boo-hoo, poor me. Mm. And I think that, to me, that does ring true. You know, this was a very difficult time for her, but, you know, as we see here, the priority is to make sure that relations between father and son are as good as they can be, and clearly they're not at the moment. So let's see where we go next. You know, he's lined up some official visits for us tomorrow. Who? Pa. He assured me they'd be shutting the place down to keep the girls out. There's a new teenage heartthrob in town. Tall, blonde, and blessed with his mother's good looks, Prince William is officially a sensation. One and only Prince Charming. I, I love him. And, and he said hi, and then he shook my hand. I shook his hand! <laughs> Well, what we've seen there is the real advent of serious Will's mania as the Prince of Wales and his boys arrive in Vancouver to find a city that seems to be evaded by completely hysterical teenage girls. Let's unpick a few things here. We see William and Harry on the flight with their father. I'm afraid to uh, come in here with a bit of uh, crown fiction. William wasn't on the flight. Those were the rules in those days. They couldn't all fly together except in very exceptional circumstances. So, Charles and Harry flew on one aircraft. William came in separately. We see the boys holed up in their Vancouver hotel room, uh, effectively raiding the minibar. Um, Harry um, downing gin and whiskey. Let's not forget, Harry's 13 at this point. I keep forgetting this this actor who looks like he's sort of, um, he's, he's sort of been dropped in from some sort of adult drama. Um, his, as you said, he's in his 20s, Natasha. You know, here he is uh, sort of helping himself. One character who doesn't seem to appear at all, but who I remember was very key to this because I was there. I was in Vancouver. I followed this story. The boys had with them the very sensible presence of Tiggy Leg Burke. They're sort of, she was sometimes called a nanny. She wasn't really a nanny. She was more of a sort of big sister, friend, wise 
escort, if you like. And I'm quite sure she would not have stood there while a 13-year-old Harry was throwing back the whiskey. But the scenes were like that on the streets of Vancouver. It was bedlam. Yeah, I have an article from The Sun here. Wills to get pop stars welcome. He's become the country's top heartthrob of talking about exciting teenage girls. And I mean, this was particularly interesting for me and not to make it all about myself. But the day that they arrived in Canada that they're portraying here was the day that I was born, 24th of March, 1998. Happy birthday, <laughs> retrospectively. Why is this not featured in The Crown? Well, I, I, I <laughs> sort of perhaps it's coming up in a later episode. But it's so interesting you say that because I dug out one of my articles articles from literally that the day after you were born, because the articles appear a day later. And I found that I was the first person who actually did coin the phrase Will's Mania in print. We heard it mentioned there in the series. I said, Prince William was yesterday invested with the double-edged honour bestowed only on those who reached the highest echelons of celebrity mass hysteria. Will's Mania broke out for the first time in Canada as the Prince of Wales and his sons met the people of Vancouver. So yes, I would say what we're seeing is pretty much what happened. It was loud, it was noisy, and it definitely made the front pages. Now, I've told everyone that for the next few days, no more interruptions. There's just one photo call with a small group of invited journalists. Willie, that's the way it works. We give them something and they leave us alone. You know I hate this stuff. It's really not much. It's already been a thousand times more than I agreed to. Something we've all got to learn to live with. But I hate it. One of the joys of The Crown is getting to tour the world from your sofa and they are delivering. We are now in the beautiful, snowy Canada. We are on the slopes in Whistler, which is a, Robert, I believe you went to yourself. Yeah, I was on that trip. In fact, I remember buying buying a new ski suit, which I'm still wearing to this day, much to the despair of my family. Uh, A rather elderly, now yellow one piece. I'm sure it was in fashion at the time. But um, no, that rings true. The photo call, you see the press standing there on the hill. I was among them. I mean, you know, this this sort of slight caricature sort of press, all constantly yelling. It's not like that at all, actually. It's a much more sort of peaceable photo opportunity. But the ski outfits, they look pretty much as they were. The thing I'm definitely remembering very differently through this episode is William is absolutely hating all of this. Mm. And it's as though it's all a sort of sudden shock and surprise that there are all these crowds in Vancouver that he's got to go and do these engagements and he hates it. It wasn't quite like that. I mean, the boys, they were a very tight unit. They were certainly from all one could see and indeed from talking to people in the royal party. They were thoroughly enjoying this time with their dad. And there was one engagement in Vancouver where they were going to be presented with these sort of baseball jackets. And Charles thought, actually, they didn't want to go up on stage and you know be sort of exposed to all that. So he was going to just receive these jackets. And actually, when they came out, the boys off their own volition, they sort of, you know, they went up. There was sort of smiles and laughter. And there was an Understanding that, yes, you know, you're going to have to do this, this this press call. I'm sure it's very annoying. You know, they did find these things annoying. But I think the idea that William was constantly at loggerheads with his father in this period, it just wasn't quite how I saw it. I think they were a pretty tight family unit, really drawing strength from each other. 
One thing that they missed out, which I think is a shame, is I found some of the articles at the time, and I don't know if you remember this, Robert, is apparently some of the screaming girls were in that crowd waiting to see William arrive and watching them recreate that photo shoot. And some of the quotes are hilarious, as they've got here a shivering 14-year-old called Jessica and was such a fan of William that she'd been there for the Vancouver walkabout and then had come to Whistler (laughs) to see William again, saying, I had to see him again. He's really cute. Another girl called Clarissa said, when I see him, I blush. I just go all week. (laughs) Well, you know, he was this heartthrob. I mean, I have to say, Vancouver's the only time I've seen a policeman rugby tackling a 14-year-old girl in the street. Someone came rushing out of the crowd, clutching we don't know what, and the cops weren't taking any chances. I mean, there was that sort of level of hysteria. But actually, by the time he got to Whistler, up the mountain, you know, they were largely left in peace. Now I come to think of it, the only people who kind of broke the deal with the family, because, you know, Canada, it's not really paparazzi country, were three local Canadian TV crews who actually tried chasing him up the mountain. And I remember the Royal Police said, no, no, we've got this deal, leave him alone. So actually, after that, they were pretty much left alone. But the Canadian media were absolutely enthralled by this to the point that I remember when they were actually arriving in Vancouver, it coincided with the incredibly popular comedy series Fraser, which everyone in Canada loved, and it was a sort of must-watch. But it was so big, the arrival of William and Charles and Harry, that they actually went for split-screen coverage. I remember watching. So you could watch, it had sort of Fraser on in the corner, and at the same time it had the royals arriving in Vancouver. It was that big a deal. Wow. We'll be back with more after the break. 
powerful lines. William says, you didn't actually drive the car, but you drove her into the arms of those that did, which you would imagine if Prince William or King Charles were to watch that would be very uncomfortable. All of these conversations are examples of private discussions. Journalists weren't there, cameras weren't there, but from you know people in the world, Robert, you were reporting at the time. Is this fair? Is it close to being accurate? I mean, who knows, but it's certainly pushing the boundaries of taste here to have a teenage boy who was, you know, who's who's still very much part of national life, was going through a horrible year after his mother had died. Did he turn on his father? Did he actually get closer to his father? Uh, We don't know. This is completely fabricated. It suits the plot line, clearly. It's raising the drama, the tension. You know, it's a a sort of father and son split. Before we see Charles and William having their showdown, there's that sort of rather tender moment where Prince Philip suddenly pondering, well, what sort of father was I? And we see him going back through his old photographs and letters from his father to him, from Prince Charles to him, and you can see the sort of bubble coming out of his head saying perhaps I'm something to do with all this too. Historically, the sort of tensions from one reign to the next, one generation to the next, one king to heirs to their heirs. You know, history is littered with examples of father and son tensions. So in that regard... Peter Morgan is is really just sort of following sort of, you know, the Shakespeare playbook here. But beyond that, I don't think we can really say what we know is we're now in the spring of 98. It's a good six, seven months since the death of Diana. Would this have happened? I don't know, but I find that scene quite uncomfortable, though very well acted. Yeah, I think Ed McVeigh does a really a stunning performance there. But as and Don West as well. I mean, yeah. I think there's some, a lot of Charles mannerisms there that, uh, that ring true. But it's, it's definitely uncomfortable viewing. Hmm. Psychologists are fairly evenly split between those who think a child should never be separated from its family and those who think the sooner it's rescued from its family, the better. Before we talk about you and your father... He resents me. What is worth, I don't think that's true. But maybe you're angry with your father because it's more acceptable than admitting who you're really angry with. Well, there we've seen Prince William back at Eton going up to his room and suddenly there in the room already there's the Duke of Edinburgh. Prince Philip has let himself in and and wants to have a chat. Then the two of them adjourn to an empty dining room and a a game of chess and a real heart-to-heart where it's sort of Prince Philip taking the role of shrink, really, telling Prince William some home truths, but obviously imparting wisdom that is sinking in. You know, we see sort of plot change here. The bubble in William's head goes, actually, you know, Grandpa has got me thinking. And in as much as, yes, Prince Philip was a very thoughtful man. We found that occasionally when his letters to people would sort of emerge in public, not least to Diana herself. He wasn't this sort of gruff old sea dog that he's often portrayed as. He was a very thoughtful man. He was very interested in psychology and philosophy. Uh, We see a bit of that coming through there. He was wise and his grandchildren adored him. Prince William took part in a documentary I did on Prince Philip after his death and paid very warm tribute to his role in his life. So, yeah, Prince Philip could get through in a way that perhaps 
perhaps others could not. Did you feel it was moving, poignant, that scene, Natasha? Yeah. Earlier in the episode, we saw Charles say on the phone to Camilla, we're not very good at father and sons in this family. And you feel like this is clearly meant to be a turning point where, as you mentioned earlier, Prince Philip is looking back at his relationship with his father and Charles and is making an effort to try and stop history repeating itself, perhaps trying to make an, an intervention to have family harmony in the future. And I think it's it's well acted and poignant and it's nice to see a kind of struggling Prince William hopefully turning a corner. Well, I think the corner's coming up. Off you go. My father in his study. In the garden, sir. Thank you. Well, the episode has ended there with actually no script at all. Hats off to the French horn player who has actually, we haven't talked really much about the music in this series, but uh, the French horn is very powerful and particularly there as we've seen everything uh, reach a sort of reconciliation. Prince William has absorbed the wise words of Prince Philip who drives him down to see his father and we just see William walk out into the garden. There is Prince Charles in a very familiar position, knee deep in a flower bed weeding. I've seen him do that. He does love his weeding. That rings true. And William goes up to him and gives him a just a, a great hug. And it's a rather moving moment, isn't it, Natasha? Yeah, and we see a kind of bleary-eyed Prince Philip looking on proudly. Um, he was never never bleary-eyed very often. Really? Is that, <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> he, he didn't do tearful, but um, maybe at that moment. We have no idea whether this exists. I'm yeah. quite sure he, he didn't act as his chauffeur and take him down to Highgrove. I think it's completely made up, but it brings the plot full circle in a, in a very poignant way. The overall idea that father and son are reconciled, I think, does ring true. Yeah, fact or fiction, it's, uh, I think it's an effective scene. It's a satisfying one to watch and overlaid we see footage of a young Prince Philip with Charles which we see a sort of return of Matt Smith for that which I think is always always welcome because I think most people definitely view those early series of The Crown as really that's when you know this series was at its best and then we see young William row out to Diana's grave um, and leave flowers. I was a little bit confused about the locations here because as far as I'm aware, Diana's grave is at her childhood home in Mm. Northampton. I thought we just suddenly had a plot shift from Highgrove to Althorpe and he's rowing out to the island on the lake Mm. where Diana is buried and I think what effectively the, the script writer is saying there is he's now reconciled with both parents in a touching way. Um, Have you enjoyed this episode? Yeah, even though there were very emotional and sensitive parts of this episode, I really enjoyed the lighter moments. Will's mania, I definitely enjoyed. Obviously, I was born as this was all playing out. So I'm still learning a lot from this, even with the fiction that is nestled in between it all. I just think with part one, they were always going to have a problem with Diana's death just being such an incredibly difficult topic to cover. And I think now that we are past that and moving on to the future, I feel more comfortable watching it. What about you? 
I agree. I think this does capture pretty well the sense in which school, friends, and normality were a sort of refuge for both William and Harry at this point. We don't really see very much of Harry, this rather peculiar 20-something-year-old, 13-year-old Harry. Making gin and tonics. <laughs> Making gin, apart, from, <laughs> apart from raiding the minibar. Uh, but I do think you know the way in which sort of Eton did throw its arms around William rings true here. I would have liked to have seen possibly a flashback, which I think we did see one of the earlier series of the Queen's days at Eton, because, of course, Elizabeth II was an older Tony N. As a, a teenager, she used to go to the school to receive lessons in constitutional history history from Henry Martin, a very distinguished, slightly eccentric, elderly beak, as they call masters there, who um, was rather unused to teaching a single princess and would address her as gentleman, which was the only way he could address a class. But she was always profoundly grateful for the lessons that she had there. Um, and I think you see the same way in which, you know, this is this, this school is, 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 is the right place for William at this difficult time. And, and we do, you know, it does take us back, as you say, to the earlier part of the series, the, the dashing young Prince Philip having a sort of reprise here. I think it's, yes, it's, it's there's a lot of nostalgia in this episode. I think at the end, quite a few people, you know, will possibly be, um, you know, shedding a tear. Definitely. And there is an attention to detail that I do appreciate. One particular detail that I enjoyed was when we see Prince William's room at Eton. There's three glamorous women on the wall, Claudia Schiffer, Cindy Crawford and Naomi Campbell, obviously huge supermodels at the time. And whether or not he had these exact women on the wall, we don't know. But in a later documentary, Prince William did tell a quite amusing story about how when his mother Diana was alive, she arranged for Cindy Crawford, Christy Turner, and Naomi Campbell to be waiting at the top of the stairs when he returned home from school. I mean, you can only imagine how kind of terrifying this would be. He's a blushing prince in a Canada, you know, it would be practically red at this point. Um, and he said at the time, uh, you know, I was probably 12 or 13 year old boy who had posters of them on my wall, just talking about what a kind of incredible moment that was. And also the sense of humour that Diana had pulling on her contacts in the showbiz world. It's one of those stories where in some senses it's it's so relatable being you know awkward in your teenagers and in another sense totally unrelatable you know did you have that Robert? Yeah I, I, I was always coming home from school to find uh, trios of supermodels at the top of the stairs no I think it's it's a sweet story it shows Diana it sort of sums up her sort of sense of impishness and also what a sort of devoted mum she was I think it's a very sweet story one other thing about this episode I noticed Natasha was I do love looking at the credits I mean they do go on forever and ever but in among them there's always a few little nuggets and I see that our old friend Alistair Campbell has dropped off now. He's no longer a consultant probably largely because as, a, as Tony Blair's spin doctor he doesn't have much to do with this episode because it doesn't have Tony Blair in it but I did notice that there was a credit for a chess consultant. I've never in any film or documentary or ever seen somebody credited as a chess consultant but the game of chess between Prince Philip and Prince William is obviously subject of a microscopic preparation and planning just in case any chess addicts out there might say that it was uh, it was wrong. So while they're quite happy to make up all sorts of nonsense about the relationships between people that we all know and hold dear, they go to extraordinary lengths to make sure a game of chess is, is spot on. I mean, they are a funny old lot, aren't they? Yeah, never mind the royal family. You cannot upset the chess fans. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of The Crown Fact or Fiction. Once again, we'd like to spotlight a comment or two that's been left by our lovely listeners. I've got one here from Paul, who said, really interesting and objective podcast, enjoying it very much. And I'm very pleased to say that uh, we've got one here from a listener in France, uh, referring last time, Richard K, five-star episode. So uh, someone clearly enjoyed our last episode where we have Richard K in the studio, and I'm sure we'll have him in again soon. But if you've enjoyed listening and you haven't already, please do give us a, a five-star rating and give us a follow, and feel free to leave a comment or review. And we might read it out in the next episode. And if you'd like to send us a WhatsApp message, take a look in the show notes for our our number. But for now, thanks for listening to The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Goodbye. Goodbye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is, AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier. All built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. I've got me, Darren! But here's one anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is Everything I Know About Me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again. Because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. Unashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah... I remember that being really stressful. Everything I know about me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.